Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I lost my brother three years ago to suicide. And it's one of the most irreversible decisions ever. And he would have rather not be here anymore mm. than actually ask for help. Alex's campaign is inspired, of course, by the death of his little brother who took his own life due to mental health. I've been to the darkest places. Grief is something that everyone experiences. So how do you tackle that? And I told one of my consultants, oh my God, I love Love Island. Like, why don't you just go with the interview? It would be fun. So for the last three years, I've worked on getting early support hubs funded. So I'm asking the government to fund £200 million to put 190 support hubs across England. Men are up to 10 times more likely to take their own life than a woman. So I think one of the biggest solutions to men's mental health and suicide prevention and improving illness is... What is up, guys? And welcome back to Working Hard, Hardly Working, the podcast. Today... I am talking to Dr. Alex George. I would like to point out at this point that there is going to be a trigger warning in this episode for suicide. So if that subject or related subjects trigger you in any way, please feel free to turn this podcast off now and please look after yourself. Dr. Alex has become known for talking really openly and honestly about his journey with mental health, both in the grief of losing his younger brother to suicide a few years ago, talking about the help of medication in him getting through that, and has spent a lot of time advocating for real change to the government in terms of genuine policies that we could put in place to protect people's mental health, especially younger and in schools and universities. I loved this conversation. I thought it was really heartfelt, showed a lot of kind of his experience with social media and the public eye, but also what we can genuinely do to make a difference to our own mental health and mental health as a society so I hope you enjoy this episode if you do as always please make sure to rate and follow the podcast on whichever platform you're listening to it really makes a difference in terms of the types of guests we can get on and the types of conversations we can have and I am greatly appreciative if you do decide to do that but anyway I hope you enjoyed this episode I hope you have a lovely day and I have nothing else to add Rising to fame in 2018 for his dating escapades on Love Island, Dr. Alex George has since taken the media world by storm, becoming a TV doctor, writer, and now youth mental health ambassador to the government, improving the support that young people receive regarding their mental health. He has also since published two Sunday Times number one bestsellers, as well as bringing out his newest book, The Mind Manual. From his years as an A&E doctor, Alex has become a well-known and respected figure, bringing the nation accessible and reassuring advice directly from the front line throughout the pandemic. He is honest about the struggle with his own mental health, hoping to break the stigma, being an advocate for Post Your Pill on Instagram, and has since opened up about the tragedy of losing his younger brother to suicide, raising awareness and sharing his grief journey. Recounting his experiences with social backlash, mental health, grief and failure, Alex aims to use his social platform for good. Thanks for having me. It's great to be along. I'm appreciating the, the comfort of this couch. Very different to the rainy weather yeah. at Stompcast. I'm very sorry about that. I couldn't <laughs> control context. the weather. <laughs> for context, I went on Alex's podcast the other day, and it is an outside podcast where you go and walk, which sounds like it would be calming. Hmm. On a stormy day with lightning, 
not calming it wasn't ideal it, it, was, it was sunny in the morning so i came i guess you're a tire you came kind of summery well, exactly that because then i yeah. was like well i've been dressed terribly but then i was like i couldn't have got to work in this and yeah. not thought you know this is terrible yeah. if it wasn't appropriate for the morning which obviously is very much the uk but i came back to the office literally looking like i'd gone for a swim and the odd thing is as soon as you went back it was beautiful sunshine it was like an hour yeah. of genuine thunder, someone's got some storm, bad karma everything i know but there we go we did it we muscled through so. we did it so you know if you want another installment after this episode please uh you're welcome to go and listen Thank to that one much. we're gonna dive straight in i'd love for you to give everyone just a little bit of background on you who you are how you got to where you are now sure my, my name is alex george um i am welsh i was born in west wales i went to um uh, state schools there and my family lived in kind of a small cottage and i think my childhood was very much the opposite to living in central london and mm-hmm. doing all the things i do now i think people often think that i'm um this extrovert and maybe i always wanted to do tv or these things but to be honest like it's it couldn't be further from mm. who, how i grew up or well, in a way, who I am. I'm actually an introverted person. I went to uni, Exeter Uni, and studied medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, came to London, started working in King's. Uh, and then all of a sudden, a little thing called Love Island happened. Mm-hmm. And I guess here we are. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think I'm very fortunate that I've lived a life where I've not been too afraid of failure and I've gone mm. for things. And I think that's led me to have, so far, a relatively interesting life. Quite a lot of ups and downs, but... Yeah, because I can imagine that is like, I mean, obviously, I know a lot of people see something like Love Island as obviously, I mean, it is an amazing opportunity, but also for you to be taking that almost risk when you're already in a job that is, you know, I'm sure you would have perceived to be your kind of idea of success at that point. Did you always know that you wanted to be a doctor? Yeah, I think probably from the age of like 13 or 14, I think early enough, I was kind of like, this is the kind of career I want to do. I I found out I have ADHD Mm. about eight months ago. And so much of my life has now suddenly made sense. Mm. I love adrenaline. I like to be generally quite impulsive. I like doing lots of different things. I like to Mm -hmm. focus for short periods and do different Mm -hmm. things. And therefore, it makes quite a lot of sense. I really wanted to be an A&E doctor. Mm. If you have ADHD and work in A&E, it's kind of quite nice mm. because you go and see one patient and you run on to the next and the next and the next one for someone that's perhaps neurotypical maybe sometimes more challenging mm. you wouldn't want me to be a surgeon because standing around for eight hours and focusing is not good i don't think i'd make a good surgeon but for me it was perfect and so i guess in some ways i just followed my instinct i, I kind of wanted to follow this career and yeah with the love island stuff i mean i was 27 years old i had 200 followers not 200,000, 200 followers on instagram didn't care about social media at all didn't apply to go on the show it was kind of through it almost like a, a friend of a friend who actually saw me on a dating app and then dm'd me and said do you want to come on love island and i was like sorry cool. what was were co- they like a, a producer friend, like a friend of a friend who was a producer but on a dating app and saw me on the dating app and mm-hmm. i was like maybe we should think about asking him for love island which i genuinely have no idea why um i genuinely don't know what made that person think mm. about it. i need to go back and ask them really um but anyway i thought it was a prank genuinely i went around all my friends saying what are you on about you're having me on here and i told one of my consultants um, called Anna Colclough at, uh, at, at Lewisham Hospital where I was working at the time said oh I've just had this message and she's like oh my god I love Love Island like why don't you just go to the interview it would be fun and anyway like I had an hour long chat with these people and I was so chilled I turned up genuinely just casual people turned up dressed up the guys were just like tanned to the max and like big guys and I just turned up just literally I was going to the pub afterwards and then on Monday I was cycling home from A&E phone was buzzing I've got it to show the map on the bicycle I pulled over and I was like hello and it was when the execs ITV were like 
want you to not only go on, we want you to be like an original cast yeah. member, like to be a starting member. And I was like, what the hell? And I <laughs> to the last second, and they, I, I'd imagine to this day, I probably can say I was the only person to go on the show that genuinely didn't want to go on the show. And even to the last moment, I was like, I'm not going to do this because I enjoyed my life. I was doing my dream job already. Mm. But deep down, I always knew that I'd go back. And that mm. was a big thing. And to be honest, like I thought I'd be on there for a week or two weeks. Mm. I was in between jobs in a way, or in between contracts. And they were like, just go and have a holiday and come back to A&E. You know, it's, it's always here. Things turned out very differently. So Logistically, did you have to quit your job at that stage? Or did you have to say, I'm, you know, on mm. sabbatical for well, I didn't because the or... way contracts work with doctors is that you do, it's every, it's basically every summer you renew mm. your, your contract. So I was going to be in between contracts. I was like, well, I finished this contract. I'll just start my next one when I get back. Right. So it was kind of perfect timing in a way. Like I just, mm. I just said to the hospitals, I'm going off. Um, I finished my contract anyway. They're like, yeah, fine. As I'll be two weeks, basically taking a little break and a little yeah. holiday. I'll be back. And what made you say yes to the experience? I had a very close friend at uni called Freya Barlow, and she was the most amazing person. To give an idea for people listening, what kind of person she was, in the summers, she went out to Africa and was doing vaccination programs. She started charities. She was just the most incredible person a year and a half into med school i remember seeing some bruises on her arms and she played hockey and stuff and i said what are those bruises in quite random places for bruises yeah that's odd i've not knocked it said you really should see the doctor about that i went to the doctor they did a blood test and i was sent to um, the hospital immediately and i have a really severe type of leukemia Mm. called acute myeloid leukemia she had six months or something of, 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 of chemotherapy did her studies and her exams in an isolation cubicle which was just unbelievable she had a bone marrow transplant from someone in germany who donated the bone marrow and she came out and ran a marathon within like a couple of months of of coming out to to raise money for leukemia but very sadly she um she relapsed um uh just before the christmas of the following year and um basically was told she had two weeks to live basically i saw her a couple of days before she passed and she said to me she was like alex you're, you're someone who has a lot to give in mm. life, but often you say no and you, 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 you kind of turn things down because you're an introvert and you don't, you know, I just want you to live your life. Go for it and say yes to things and live your life. Genuinely, I, I, I know that sounds ridiculous. And I, I laugh. I still laugh about it. I'm like, mm. I'm not sure Love Island was the context of her thoughts, but I was like, let's just do it. And, yeah. and, and, you know, whether you love or hate Love Island, excuse the pun, it's allowed me to do so much now. And I hope so much good in this space. And I've, I feel like as a result, I hope I've helped, you know, a significant number of people. I hope I can continue helping people because yeah. of that thing. Yeah, no, that is such a beautiful story. And I think that like a lot can be learned from that type of attitude in terms of just, you know, yeah, I completely agree that there's a lot of reasons to think about things before you do them. But I also think that we can often think too much and try and plan every single step. And ultimately, you wouldn't even be able to plan your life a year from now. Like, you don't know all of the things that are going to happen in order to, you know, get you to where exactly. you're going to be next year. And so how can you expect to try and have that kind of control and planning over everything? I often try and channel a little bit more of that as someone who is such a planner like I just plan absolutely everything and I want to be able to plan like trajectories of things and all of that and just a lot of the time I literally just have to be like nope not how it works like just essentially just do it 
work out the next steps later. And it's kind of like there's a balance because like, you know, you you run multiple businesses and all the ventures you do. You can't just be living a life on a whim of something mm. all the time. Yeah, and it's not the suggest never the suggestion because actually that's not a way to live either. Mm. I find it interesting. I, I love the analogy of thinking of a, a clock timer, so the sand timer. You know, the sand above and the sand below is the time that's passed in the middle is, is your second the second or the present at the moment. And I love the idea that when you flip that over and you think that's the beginning of your life, you know, the time that's above that narrow bottleneck is the time that you have and obviously the time that passes. The thing about life, though, is you don't know how much sand you have above that bottleneck. Do you? you don't know mm. when that time is done and when it's gone, it's gone. And the most precious asset we have, we think of assets and business and investments and so on, the most precious thing that you have is your time so spend mm. it wisely that doesn't mean going out living a life like partying all the time it just means being present like i love i spend my evenings in with rollo i have a very boring life uh, in many ways but i enjoy that i don't go to lots of social events don't go to big mm. parties or things like that. i just want to enjoy the time that i have and i think you know for the when you do have opportunities you know i talk about there's a whole chapter in the mind manual about this you know it, it's it's not about saying yes to everything because you should be living life saying yes to everything it's about saying yes to the right things in life and yeah, learning to say no and having boundaries to the points whereby like for you and your work and what you do like if you were just all the time saying yes to everything you must have millions of opportunities you wouldn't get anything done that you really want to do and of i course, think learning to do that's really important yeah yeah no definitely even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today in terms of you know the idea of like what you should be spending your time doing again just like what are you literally what do you enjoy like what are you that kind of like it doesn't have to be partying all the time but also it can be like going yeah. out more if you're the type of person who's kind of like you know you're prioritizing too many things over actually just like having Letting a good time go and that's fun, what you yeah. want um then kind of being able to prioritize that and just shift your priorities a little bit and how did you find the love island experience in terms of your mental health i think it was hard being on there in terms of um it was just such a different environment you know i'm an mm. introvert and you put my you put someone who's an introvert in a very extroverted environment i think that becomes draining and for people for context i think lots of people think um being an extrovert introvert is based on how you appear or how you present that isn't true at all. Mm. Um, extroversion, introversion is about where you gather your energy. So an introvert will gather their energy on themselves, by themselves or with a small group of people and they'll spend energy um, or spend their tokens, if you like, when they're in situations like this. So I enjoy doing this, but it is spending energy. Whereas an extrovert would gather energy from being in social situations. And yeah. for them, it's actually quite exhausting beyond their mm. own too much. So 
you know, it was tiring at points, but you know, I came away being like, this was an incredible experience. Yeah. Quite literally once in a lifetime thing. Yeah. Very few people will do that. But yeah, it was tough. I mean, I came off the first few months. I was like, whoa, this is crazy. I have a million followers on Instagram. Mm. You know, I, I went in with a, I went on the show and they took my phone off me. And nine weeks later, I had my crappy old iPhone back and it literally died when I turned it on because I had about, <laughs> I think it was four or 5,000 messages mm. through Instagram, WhatsApp. And then my Instagram, as soon as it opened and I saw, and I had no context of yeah. how many followers, I had like a million followers. I was like, whoa, what is going on? So that was a huge shock for me. And it took me time to work out how to navigate mm. social media and do what, I wanted and I think my audience is probably very different now you know I you know it's grown I've got like nearly two million followers now but I think the audience and the reason that people were with me then is very different to why they're with me now and I Mm. think that's I hope that's a lot to do with the fact that I you know I'm a big believer in life that you know what you put out you you get back and also in the same way if you set up stall and this is what you care about this is what you're doing the people who are interested in what you've got on the stall will come to your stall Mm. um and I, and I feel that that has been very important for my own mental health for social media because yeah. I don't want to pretend to be someone else. I'm I'm not someone, you don't want me rapping fashion. You don't really want me out there, uh, you know, going to parties all the time. That's just not my thing. It's not how I'd really live an inauthentic life if I did those things. Mm, yeah. So when you came out of Love Island, did you know straight away that you were going to kind of shape your career mm. in the direction mm. of mental health was it something you were talking about and really caring about Mm. at the time or when I was at university in Exeter it was the first time I'd ever really thought about mental health Mm -hmm. which is sounds like an odd thing for someone who's already studying at med school Mm. but we don't actually do a lot of mental health we didn't at med school at that time but I personally went through a really difficult time my fourth year med school and I was down in Truro which is a beautiful part of the world but Mm. I was away from family and friends I was on placement and my mental health just went to the floor and I had this weird thing where I was like I feel awful. I don't know what's happening, but mm. I can't tell anyone because if I tell the university, they'll stop me being a doctor. That was what I thought. Right. I don't necessarily know that's true. I don't think that's true. But rumours based on kind of the think you're people, not. If you ask a lot of people in the medical profession and actually a lot of people in any industry, people are afraid that the stigma about mental illness mm-hmm. will prevent them in career progression and things. So I was like, I'm not saying anything. Things got worse, as they often do. If you don't kind of try and tackle problems, they often get worse. And eventually I was like, this is so bad. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to speak to my mum, which I should have done at the start. Mum, uh, I feel awful. And all of a sudden I had like a huge outpour of emotion. I remember at the time like just crying, crying. But I felt amazing. And I was like, I've offloaded this huge, yeah. horrible secret off my shoulders. And me and my mum, we did thought of the day every ne- every evening where we talk about like how I, what I was thinking about, what things I was worried about. For context, I'm a very big overthinker. I struggle a lot with anxiety. That's what drove my mood down. I was so anxious mm. about everything. So we did thought of the day. I planned suddenly that I was like, I've been, I've been out of the gym. I've been sleeping terribly. I've not been eating well. I was like, let's create a routine. Get up in the mm. morning, go to bed at seven, go to bed at 10, go for a walk every morning. I'm going to exercise uh, four or five times a week. Mm. I'm going to eat a much better. I started cooking and making myself food. And after six to eight weeks, I was like, I feel completely different. Yeah, I went, right. I was a completely different person again. It's not to say that just doing those things is going to fi- fix everyone's mental illness. It isn't. At the time I was experiencing probably mild depression mm. and therefore those lifestyle factors were huge. 
for me, but it really taught me something. That first of all, I was nearly a doctor and didn't have a clue about mental health, mm. how to look after myself or how to treat a mental illness. And also that stigma is so bad and it's preventing even people who work in health from getting right. help. So when I came out of Love Island, I was like, well, first of all, I know that routine is so important for me and I'm lost and it's chaos at the moment. Mm. And it's like when people go, I get my dream, I finished from university, get my dream job in the new city. You go to the new city and you think, this is my dream job. You're going to have to make new friends. You're going to have to find a new gym. You're going to feel lost for a bit. You might have to find somewhere to live. You've got a new job. And sometimes our, even our dream situations can shake us to the core. And we all know that to be true. Mm. So our, going back to A&E was one of the best things I ever did because it gave me my grounding. It reminded mm. me who I was again. And suddenly I just started talking about the things I cared about on social media and everything else came on from them and the mental health stuff back in the day thinking do you know what if i'm going to use this platform for one thing if i can do one thing with this i'm going to change the way that we view mental health that yeah. was the thing for me do you think that at the point that you were at university and really struggling and not talking about things do you think that a lot of that was because of the kind of not just the stigma of you know being a doctor but also the stigma of men talking about their feelings was it something mm. where did you feel like you had an open line of communication mm. with your friends mm. or you know would, would you be able mm. to like talk about that mm. for a second it's interesting because um people talk about why is there such a difference between men and women in terms of suicide and just for context the biggest killer for under 35s is suicide mm. which is is huge for how we actually think about like looking after people and things like yeah, workplaces universities i always find it in fact one of the biggest things i'm trying to work on in my role as ambassador is to create a legislative legislative framework around mental health in the workplace i find it fascinating that when you start a new job you've got to do fire safety which is great um you have to have a certain number of first aiders if you've got a company a certain side size in in physical mm. health but the thing that kills most people that work in any place or any university isn't a fire or physical injury. It's actually suicide, but we don't have any mm. plans to deal with that. So when it comes to men, uh, the biggest factor, I believe, is simply how we bring up men to be. Like, I remember growing up being told things like, big boys don't cry, man up, don't be a girl, mm. as if being a girl was somehow, like, emasculating or something. Mm. And, and you were basically brought up in a way to not speak and not talk about when you're struggling. Mm. So when you're struggling to open the curtain in the morning because your mental health is so bad or you're feeling so low, how are you going to overcome everything you've been conditioned not to be and find the strength to change everything that you are and ask for help? And that's mm. why men are up to 10 times more likely to take their own life than a woman. And one of the big mistakes we make in men's mental health is we keep just talking about men women have been conditioned through society to generally talk a lot more have open forms of communication and 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 share a lot more in their problems earlier on why don't we engage this skill set that women have with men mm. so i think one of the biggest solutions to men's mental health and in terms of suicide prevention and improving illness is actually just involve the women in mm. their lives as well get men and women talking you'll find actually you know, together that combination, it'll make a huge difference. But also I think I, it always astounds me how little the patriarchy is talked about when talking about something mm. like mental health. Mm. And the patriarchy is often like raised as a, you know, talking about the gender pay gap or talking about improving, um, you know, 
rights for women, which obviously incredibly important. Yeah, I mean, some of, of the, if you actually look at like recent history in terms of like really not that long ago, mm. women literally couldn't get like a credit card or own mm. a property without being married or whatever. Like not the early part yeah. of the last century, like literally the later part, which is crazy. Mm. But you actually, when you're thinking about, when you're talking about things like mental health, the patriarchy absolutely harms mm. men just as much or in very different ways but in significant ways it is not just about harming women yeah. the whole expectation mm. of the need to you know the need to mm. work hard the need to be the breadwinner mm. the need to mm. like take the brunt of everything the need to like not talk about your feelings all mm. of these things for at, for being at risk of mm. essentially emasculating mm. yourself or making yourself not a worthy kind of man is mm. crazy and entirely ingrained mm. in the patriarchy yeah. It's, do you know, it, 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 it's crazy really that we, our idea of masculinity or of what it has been is around like men don't, don't need to ask for help, be tough, mm. you know, nothing should affect you, shake it off and get it on, be the leader all the time. And to me, it's just, it's so stupid mm. because actually I, I don't think it's emasculating to talk about the way you feel. I don't think it's mm. emasculating to have female leaders and to be led by females. Mm, I don't think it's emasculating to show uh, vulnerability at times. In fact, I think that being a man is absolutely, yes, it's about, I think being, being human actually is that sometimes we have to be tough when times mm. are tough, but actually to be a man, to show vulnerability and to be open and confident within yourself enough to allow that vulnerability is a huge sign of strength. Mm. And you're absolutely right. I think that one of the biggest harmful things of the, of the masculine of that idea of masculinity is that it makes everything worse for men it's the mm. irony isn't mm. it it's like tough to be a man but actually you're making life tougher for men and boys because mm. of that yeah so so much of that's why you know mental health awareness week so people go oh what's the point in this talking we cannot make change without people talking about it and recognizing it you know, you could have the shiniest mental health clinics in the world, the most mm. amazing support services, but men won't walk through your door. Mm. And until you tackle that first point where men won't go to the clinic, there's not that there's no point having clinics. I clearly want to invest in services and so on. But you got you can't just focus on the let's have great clinics. Tackle the root issue, which is that men don't talk, don't ask for help. And so how do you think we can encourage that more? And what, how does mm. your work relate to, yeah. you know, getting for example, men to talk mm. about their feelings. Well, look, I mean, you know, I I, um, I lost my brother three years ago to suicide. He made a choice where he had a binary decision. It's one of the most irreversible decisions ever. And I'm sorry if that's triggering for anyone. It's, it's, it is completely binary. And he would have rather do something and not be here anymore mm. than actually ask for help. And I think that's so important to consider that for a moment because it shows how far men will go rather than than get help. So how do you tackle that? Well, do you know what? We start at a young age, we teach emotional literacy, which means understanding thoughts and feelings and understanding how to label, understanding what they are. And people go, well, how young is young enough or how is it too young? If you're old enough to have thoughts and feelings, you're old enough to start sure. learning about them and understanding them. And if you ingrain and you educate throughout school, you will have people that are more resilient, mm. that are more capable. And people go, oh, snowflake generation. If you develop emotional resilience and an ability to recognize when you need support from the outside, and that can be in a number of ways, not just in terms of your mental health, and you develop an ability of, to have an awareness of yourself and others, you become like a really great asset to society as well as being a happier person you're mm. great and you're great i would love to have you in a and e working i'd love to have you in a business you're gonna be a great member of society so there's a huge imperative i think for 
the whole of society on many levels to actually build people that are more resilient. And yeah. resilience is not about being tough and, you know, not never admitting weakness. It's about bending and flexing under pressure and coming mm. back to your original state. Yeah, no, I think that is really powerful and really important to talk about. Do, would you mind talking about the experience of losing your brother mm. for a second? You know, grief is something that everyone experiences. We often talk about grief in the context of death and loss, mm. but relationship, a loss of a relationship, of a breakup is grief. Your pets is grief. Losing a former self or seeing mm. a former life or a former version of you change or left in the past and moving on to new chapter is a form of grief. So everyone's going to experience it. And I think one of the things sometimes we're missold about grief is that we need to get over it mm. or solve it. And if you think about with my brother, do I ever want to be in a position where the fact that he died is okay? No. Why would mm. it ever be like, do you know what? I'm over it now. It's okay that he died. Yeah, Why would I want to feel not. that? Yeah. You know, and the, what, what I think it is about is taking something that is entirely unmanageable and overwhelming into something that you can ha harness more. And I think for anyone listening that beating themselves up because they cry about something they've lost or they cry about a relationship or they feel sad, stop expecting yourself to get over things. Just focus on the fact that self-compassion, take each day at a time, invest in yourself in terms of your health and, and everything else around it and share, talk about it because I'm mm. certain you'll have experiences of grief and loss. I am certain that everyone watching will, will be able to relate to times where, yeah, they've had to let go mm. of something, you know, yeah. and, and we've all been there. So be kinder to yourself. Yeah, no, absolutely. And at that stage in your life, you'd been out of Love Island mm. for a bit mm -hmm. and you were working in mental health, is that right? In A&E. So effectively, I came out of Levine in 2018. My brother died uh, in 2020. So I'd, I I went back to A&E in Lewisham. I'd worked throughout the whole pandemic. Yeah. Um, the tough thing was, is that I was working in Lewisham Hospital, which was absolutely hammered by of COVID. Um, and I saw a lot of very difficult things. I made a decision to stay in London, work there. My family are at home and I was on my own. And he passed away a week before I was going home to see my family. I hadn't seen them for That's so, funny. so long. Um, and yeah, it just was awful. It was, it was just the whole thing was awful. So it shook me to the core and I had to go back to like, what is life? What am I doing? I had to learn to go outside and go for a walk. Mm. I needed to learn to like, just do the things that sound so obvious in your life, yeah. like eat again. I stopped eating for like four or five days completely yeah. all those things that i had to rebuild into my life but again if you think about the shaking like when you're shook shook and shaken go back to the things that anchor you so going back to a and e again helped me and from that time onwards i'd already been speaking a lot about mental health and mm. um, i'd seen the challenges of the pandemic but i was like we need to do something yeah so i used social media the platform i had to put a post out there saying boris um, uh, johnson the prime minister i need to speak to you i need to take all of this stuff that i've learned over the years and all the work that I'd done with the charities and organizations I'd spoken to after my brother passed, I need to show you this stuff. Mm. And social media went viral. I mean, it, it was it was, it was, was quite unbelievable. And within two weeks, I had a, full, a call from cabinet office. And within a few weeks from then, I was appointed youth mental health ambassador. I'm a, a volunteer in that role. And since then, it's been my relentless mission. You know, I've written three books now. The Mind Manual is the latest one. I was proud that A Better Day um, is one uh, children's book of the year, which is all about teaching young people about mm. all of these things, which I'm really proud of. But ultimately, I want to make a change. I want 
early intervention out there. So I'm looking mm. to get early support hubs funded across the country so that people can go and get help and not wait two years. And that's at a stage where you're kind of thinking that you're, mm. you know, having some problems in terms of your yeah, mental exactly. health and well-being. One of the biggest challenges, as we sit here right now, there are six Wembley stadiums full of children who are waiting for help with their mental health. Some mm. of those children will wait two years. How many things in life are we happy to wait two weeks for, let alone two years when you're struggling with your mental health. Some of the children that are waiting right now won't be here in two years. And I know that's really difficult for people to hear, but that is the reality of the situation. And it doesn't need to be that way. The children's mental health service is really important. The people work within it are doing an amazing job, but it's overwhelmed and it was never designed for early intervention. What I mean when I say that is that when people initially start noticing symptoms of mental illness and struggles, by intervening and have taking a 360 view, a 360 perspective of that person and thinking about what challenges they're facing, but also thinking about what their sleep is like, do they need therapy? Mm. Are they getting movement? Are they isolated? One of the biggest challenges for young people right now is loneliness. Mm. It's the lo loneliest generation. And for context, most people will understand that smoking is bad for you. Mm. Loneliness is as harmful to your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And that is scientific. That is absolutely factual. It's harmful. And, and children are lonely. We need to get them back into communities and more connected. And these hubs will provide community center points for them to go to, to build all of these things and to help them and prevent them waiting two years. It's mm. wrong. Yeah. And what were your biggest coping mechanisms at that point in terms of dealing with your grief? Talking. Um, I, I, I talk and I talk and I talk. Mm. Um, I have therapy and that has been life-saving for me. I've also, I took medication. I mm. started a campaign called Post Your Pill. Um, it's not a pro-medication campaign. It's a pro-getting what you need to get through yeah. campaign. And, and taking away the stigma. Yeah, and taking well. away the stigma. And it, it saved my life, mm. undoubtedly. I've been to the darkest places, but I'm here. I've got a tattoo. I showed you this too shall pass to remind me in most difficult times. And it got me, it's got me through. And medication has helped me. I'm not on medication anymore. Mm. I'm so grateful that I was on medication. Mm. And for anyone that thinks... Well, is medication just taking a pl putting a plaster on? Is it just a quick fix? Let me explain this. If you're in a well and you're in a dark hole and you can look up and you can just see a glimmer of light, but you can't climb out of that hole, mm. that what that light is almost torturing you. That you know that you could be happy, but you you can't get there. Mm. And in a similar way for any Batman fans that bane through uh, Batman down the well and he had to build up his strength to climb out. In some ways, the medication, what it does is gives you the energy and strength to then engage in therapy, to, to be able to do all the things that are important in each day mm. from you know, setting boundaries, tackling on things like mindset issues, thinking about your sleep, thinking about all these different things to build up your strength to climb out that well. And when you're out to that well, you might be able to come off that medication. Mm. So, you know, if anyone is struggling, thinking, oh gosh, you know, I, I don't want to take that. Like, is that failure? What does that mean? It, it is absolutely not. And if that piece of medication is the missing, if that medication is the missing piece of that jigsaw mm. to allow you to build your life back together into that full picture again, then yeah. please use that piece. The stigma around kind of taking medication mm. for mental health and actually the lack of recognition that people's brain chemistry is mm. different. And like there will be, you know, there will be someone who actually just lacks something yeah. in terms of the way their brain works mm. and genuinely just needs something to support that mm. in order to return. I mean, mm. we'd we'd accept that in mm. every other part of our bodies. We mm. might accept someone's naturally iron deficient. We might accept mm. someone's like all mm. of these different things and actually to be able to 
we just kind of refuse to accept yeah. that when it comes to stigma and yeah. um and it's bizarre i think for... like does anyone think that way if you take a statin for your cholesterol no. level you just take the statin you don't right. you just take it and you and mm. you, you crack on your blood pressure take a blood pressure medication you know and, and, and it's interesting because there was a lot in the press recently about um you know it's kind of classic uh press narrative of like all right there's research being done and we don't know you know how um uh how uh antidepressants work or it was more around the fact that they were saying the serotonin theory of it boosting serotonin we don't know that to be true and that was missold right. as antidepressants don't work and there's they're completely separate statements mm. we don't know so much about the brain or how it works we don't have a clue about a lot of it we don't even know all the neurotransmitters we mm. know some of them we don't know exactly how the antidepressants work but that's completely different to saying, and I can say this with confidence, that for many people it does work. In fact, antidepressants are as effective, if not more effective, than lots of other treatments we use for other parts mm. of the body and other treatments we use mm. that people take every day. In fact, you know, its profile of, of, of effectiveness is very good even compared to things like statins, right. uh, which a lot of people take. So, you know, and I've had people message me. I mean, it saved my life. I've had tens of thousands of people message me saying, if it wasn't for that medication... Where would I be? Yeah. So just so please don't let something stupid like stigma. You know, you mentioned um, how badly that we've treated women and women's rights over mm. the years. You know, one of the words that I really struggle with is that people use the word committed suicide. Mm. You commit murder, you commit arson, you commit GBH, mm. you don't commit suicide. Right. But it, until 1961, it you did. It was a crime. Yeah. It, you were in, We used to incarcerate people because they were so low, they didn't want to be here anymore. My dad is. My dad was born in 1958, so my, in my dad's lifetime, it was still illegal. You know, it was criminal to to try and take your own life, and families would beg their doctors not to put it on the death certificate for fear of shame. You know, and and I, I know that sounds really negative, but when mm. people we say language matters, it really does matter. But I also think part of that is just the recognition that actually we have so far to go, and it's actually such recent history, and the f very fact that people are still alive that would have lived in a time where it would have been illegal to even attempt suicide, yeah. for yeah. example. Yeah. That is, we almost need to recognize. I think a lot of these things we have an assumption that we are at a good place with We've them because it. they're yeah. because they are. Hmm legal yeah. <laughs> whereas actually stigmas don't come from you know entirely from things that are legal or not it takes a to, lot of time to be able to shift out to keep out. going and keep keep working on it. i mean look at this right so i um i talked about how i was fat shamed at uh, work a few years ago it's a whole separate story but um i talked about this experience on my mm. social media and you know um it was dr alex admits to body image issues and, mm. and then when i talked about medication dr alex admits to taking um to taking antidepressants do you admit to take to, would, yeah. would that headline seem strange if said dr alex admits to taking blood pressure medication do you admit to something like mm. that admitting a, implies like wrongdoing so even now there's so much language that's used around the topic that that creates that stigma i don't admit to it i've not done anything wrong it happened mm. to me yeah 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 no absolutely and so what does your work currently focus around mm. what are your biggest kind of asks for mm. the government mm. what's your biggest focus in mm. terms of what you're yeah. talking about so the last three years i've worked on getting early support hubs funded so i'm asking the government to fund 200 million pounds to allow me to put 190 support hubs across England these would then be ramped up and rolled out after that kind of mm. initial rollout of those hubs and I know that that will help 500,000 young people a year mm. so it's for under 25s 
really important because it helps a lot of university students. Every three days we lose a university student to suicide. Yeah. So university students also need a huge amount of help. These hubs will help so much. My second ask is that we create a legislative framework for workplaces around mental health. You know, um, people go, yeah, well, if we have mental health first aiders, you're going to put more work on people's shoulders. It's harder on teachers, harder on people. Any line manager will say that the problem is coming to them already. They just don't have the tools. And the thing about mental health first aid or any training, it's not about learning to fix people. It's about recognizing and signposting in the right direction. You know, teachers are faced every day with children that are struggling, but they don't have any training for it or mm. any, you know, how hard is it? It's hard enough looking after a child that's struggling, especially when you don't have any training. So two kiosks fund the hubs and let's actually do something in the workplace that gives parity between mental mental health and physical health mm. we'll be in a much better place and keep doing my school tours and making sure this message gets out there and that we don't stop talking about it mm. yeah i mean i think that's incredibly powerful and thank you so much for coming on thank today you. to anyone you look you know if you're going through something right now you know this too shall pass and also wherever you are on that mental health spectrum even if you're feeling great just in the same ways you keep going to the gym to build it focus on your mental uh, fitness build build your mental health and take pride in that like it is an investment and if you have mm. a bit if you're a business owner if you're someone that works and you want to be really really successful honestly it's one of the best the best investments you'll ever make oh, good. well thank you so much thank you thank you so much for having me Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com